seconds. <laughs> Maybe we'll keep that in the recording. Uh, yeah, That'll no. be in there. It'll just, we'll just keep this as the intro. Uh, man, I feel like I got that burp just lodged right in my chest. It's going to come out at some point, but welcome back to the Jordan Syatt mini podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is program design, strength training program design, part two. Got none other than Tony my podcast producer here on the line. This is actually take three. We were uh, using a different recording software, which just kept glitching. So now we're on we're on old faithful Zoom right now, which is just I Zoom's my favorite. But Tony, how you doing, man? Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. I'm doing good, man. Glad to be back. How uh how was your response to the strength training program design part one? Which, by the way, if someone hasn't listened to part one yet go listen to part one. That one was just a behemoth of an episode. And this one might be another behemoth. But how was the response that you got to it? Man, it was really cool. Uh, Definitely got some followers that looked like they could be inner circle members. Um, Okay, okay. That was really fun. But yeah, other than that, it's just been such a blast reading the reviews and seeing what people took away from it. And man, it just it felt great to just see that people were really engaging with what we talked about. So that was awesome. Yeah, man, I got I got some amazing feedback from it. It was really, really cool to see. Uh, it, what's interesting for me is after publishing each podcast, to I can see which podcasts get more reviews or which ones get more messages, which ones get more shares, and that one just blew up. Like that one, which is funny because nowadays people are so focused on short form content quick short fast and that one was like well over two hours yeah which for me just goes to show that when people are really interested in something they're going to be willing to spend a lot of time invested in learning about it and i had a blast making that podcast with you Uh, i got a lot of people saying they loved having you on the podcast It, it provided some great structure to it and good conversation so yeah man i i'm excited for part two Man, awesome. Awesome. Truly so happy to be a part of it. But yeah, we've got a lot to cover. Lots of great questions, some loose ends from the last behemoth episode. So I'm excited to dive right in. I feel like I blacked out after that, after recording that. I just blacked out. Like (laughs) I don't even remember what I said at all. So I'm going to let you completely lead the discussion where we start, where we go. I know we got a bunch of great questions in the reviews on iTunes. So huge thank you to everybody who left a review and, and a question. As a quick reminder, every question that we answer here on this podcast, the person who asked that question will get a free month in the inner circle. So we will announce your name and your question, and then we'll give you instructions on how to get that free month in the inner circle. So as our way of saying thank you for contributing and listening and to uh, to a- asking some, some great questions that will help other people as well. So Tony, what is yeah. step one? What, what, do we, what are we diving into first? Well, so we covered a lot of ground last episode, starting with goal setting. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't design a program without a goal. That's like a chicken mm-hmm. running without its head, right? Mm-hmm. So goal setting, and then we talked about exercise frequency, you know, figuring out what's feasible within your schedule. And then we really talked about what movements, in what order, how frequently. And so there there was a lot there to digest. Did uh, we talk I, about sets and reps as well? Like how many sets, how many reps? Like we, I know we spoke about, you know, power comes first, then maximal strength and going in that order. Did we talk about sets and reps? We did. We might want to do a quick synopsis, but 
you know, my takeaway was your explosive power movements. If you're doing mm -hmm. them, you don't mm -hmm. need to generally, unless you're an intermediate lifter, you're going to be doing a uh, low enough intensity and a low enough reps that you're really feeling better after the explosive work and not fatigued at all for your. So, so I'm going to clarify something you just said. Yeah. So for the explosive work, explosive work is inherently high intensity. Yeah. It has to be because you can't jump with low intensity, right? You can't, you can't it produce power without intensity. You, you have in order to jump as high as possible, there has to be maximum intensity. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. My, my Ripito is showing, he always talks about intensity as the amount of weight yes, that you're lifting. Correct. So my Which is why I have to clarify. Yeah. No, no, no apology. So intensity being when you train power, it's essentially either very, very lightweight and or just your body weight, mm -hmm. but the intensity that you bring to the movement must be near maximal, if not maximal. But that's also why the reps are so low. Mm -hmm. For example, this is why I hate when people do like, uh, I, I don't inherently dislike CrossFit. I think CrossFit has some amazing components to it, but one of the issues I've seen with it is they'll do box jumps, like a hundred box jumps. What the fuck is a hundred, but what are you doing? Number one, like people just, they're ripped their Achilles off of the, off the bone. Like there are a lot of issues with that. A lot of people have serious injuries with their, their ankles, knees, hips, back. But the purpose of box jumps or any jump is not to tire you out. It's not to do cardio. It's not to burn calories. Jumping is specifically for improving speed, power, and rate of force development. So you, you keep reps very low, usually five or less per set mm -hmm. so that you can bring maximal intensity to each rep. When if you're doing something for 20 reps, then you're not bringing maximal intensity. It's, it's a much more sustained endurance over time. It's the difference between a sprint and a marathon, right? It's a, a sprint is maximal intensity. Every single step, every single, every single step you take in a sprint is a maximal intensity for a marathon. You're not using maximal intensity the entire time. You might use maximal intensity when you sprint to the finish line, but for the first like 26.1 miles, you know, it's, it's not maximal intensity. So mm -hmm. that, that has to be understood when you're doing power stuff. So sorry to just go, this, this, no, no, no. this is very, uh, reminiscent of what's going to happen for the rest of the two plus <laughs> hours that we talk is just going to go off on all these different tangents, but it's important to understand that. Hey, the nuggets of gold are, are in those tangents. So after you do your explosive movements, if you do your explosive movements, you're going to do your heavy lifting, right? Yep. Your yep. low reps, high weight movements. I think my camera yep. just cut out, but yeah, yeah, yeah. let's just it's keep okay. rolling. New computer coming right up. Um, <laughs> the sets and reps for those, why don't you clarify for us um, in quick review if you're doing- For like, maximal strength? Yeah, for maximal strength. So for maximal strength, it's 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 highly dependent. And I really, I don't want to spend too much time on it, especially if we did cover it in the last one, but- generally speaking, maximal strength is going to be lower repetition, right? So for example, anywhere between one rep to about five or six reps at the very, very high end, I usually keep it between three to five, three to six reps. That That's where I tend to keep it. If I'm working with a higher level lifter, 
power lifter, Olympic lifter, and potentially even like, let's say a football player or something, then I might have them go for some, some one singles or doubles, like some very high rep one, one or two rep maxes. But for the vast majority of people sticking between three to five, three to six reps for your maximal strength work is the the safest and most effective. Nice. And then we go on to our basic strength, right? Yep. Yep. So then basic strength anywhere between that, like general, again, all generally speaking and go back and listen to the first episode for, for more detail on it, somewhere between like eight to 10, eight to 12 repetitions. Nice. Nice. And then we do accessories, circuits, finishers, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So then we go into like strength endurance and that's often between like 12 to 20 plus repetitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so that's like lighter weight inherently, if you're doing something for 12 to 20 reps, this is actually important to clarify. A lot of people always ask like, well, what's better heavyweight, low reps or lightweight and high reps. And I'll, within that question, well, first I'll answer that and say, they're both important. You need both of them. You can't just have one or the other. You need both because they both train different strength qualities, maximal strength, basic strength, strength, endurance. They both, they, they're all accomplishing different goals and you need all of them to get the best results. But what a lot of people they don't understand is when they hear lightweight, high reps, I think what a lot of people end up thinking is, oh, lightweight. So it's going to be easy for higher reps. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> because it's higher rep you will inherently use lighter weight. But let's say you're doing a set of 20. By the time you get to like reps 14, 15, 16, it should be brutal. It should yeah. be super fucking hard. It should be a maximal effort intensity once you get to those last four, five, six reps. But it's just lighter weight. So it's funny, like it, it feels different it's a very different feel to go super heavyweight, low rep than it is to go uh, relatively lightweight, higher rep. It's a different type of, of failure. So for example, let's say I'm doing a very heavy deadlift. Okay. And I'm doing three sets of five deadlifts. If I'm doing a, a three sets of five, super heavy deadlifts, one thing that's important to understand is I'm probably not going to be feeling my muscles like very much. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to be feeling the burn. I'm not going to be feeling like my glutes or my hamstrings isolated. It's not an isolation movement to begin with, but I'm not going to be feeling this super intense burn in the muscles. It's a full body compound movement. That's very, very heavy. And I'm not localized. I'm not, I'm not, so localized in each individual muscle that I'm going to be feeling each individual muscle fatigue. Whereas if I'm doing, let's say a, a front shoulder raise or a side shoulder raise for three sets of 20, I'm going to be feeling those individual muscles burning way more by the like 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20th rep. I will feel individual muscle burnings uh, and a very high sensation. So it's important to understand that one isn't better or worse than the other. They're both accomplishing different goals. And whether you're lifting super, super heavy weight, lower repetition or relatively lightweight, higher repetition, you're, you're accomplishing different things and they're both necessary for overall performance and physique enhancement. Boom. Boom. I'm, bro, I'm going to turn my camera off just because it's like weird looking at your little black oh. square and just seeing my face. Cool. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Yeah, it's go all ahead. good. And we'll keep this in the pod so people can hear what's going on behind the scenes. But I'm just going to turn that camera off so that cool. Perfect. 
the show must go on, right? I just don't like looking at my ugly mug while I'm talking like, all right, this is weird. I prefer to look at your full luscious beard, which, by the way, I was planning on talking about before your camera went off. Like, you've got the nicest beard, bro. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, thank you. I'm sure it looks better on camera, you know? I bet it looks better in person. I mean, I'm sure like the camera doesn't even do it justice. You got the microphone sort of blocking it and all that. I mean, it's it looks very, very good, though. And you've got a hell of a hairline, bro. How How old are you? I am 35, 35. You got a hairline of like a 12 year old. It's unbelievable. Like it's crazy. <laughs> the hairline of a 12 year old. I'll, that That's a compliment. I'm sure <laughs> it is a compliment. 12 year olds don't have receding hairlines. Usually. I mean, your, your hairline is just like foam straight across your forehead. It's crazy. You got a, like a full luscious beard, full head of hair. It's amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I, uh, you know, I worked really hard at it. <laughs> a lot of sets and reps went into this hairline this is you know this is built out of zero effort and <laughs> work on my part so so what do we got next so actually i think we're going to go to our first question so this is a great question by jen spencer wondering what is an adequate warm-up do we do one or two sets of each workout and then proceed into the working sets? How many reps in each warm-up set? Looking forward to part two. Thank you. Mm, great question. Okay, so, man, so this is a, the warm-up is an interesting aspect of the program because there's the warm-up, like the, the general warm-up, and then there's the specific warm-up. The general warm-up is what you do before the entire workout. The specific warm-up is what you do before the mm -hmm. individual exercise. And they're like with everything, every coach is going to have a different opinion. I think having a general warm-up is very important, especially if you lack mobility. Right. So I generally speaking, I think the general warm-up, I'm saying general so much, it's just weird. But I'm I think generally speaking, the general warm-up, the one you do before the workout, is actually tends to be more important for men than for women because men tend to have way worse mobility than women. Not always, because someone's always like, Well, that's not true. Cause one person that I met in 1982 actually is all right, shut the fuck up. Generally speaking, men have worse mobility than women. And I think that what we'll often find is men getting hurt in the gym more than women for a number of reasons, be, partly because they're trying to lift way too heavy, like way more than they should. And also partly because they're, they're trying to do things with a range of motion that they don't actually have yet. And we need to improve that with their mobility. I do think everyone should do some form of a general warmup, but for, for most people I've found men tend to benefit more with a more, more comprehensive general warmup and women and almost just go straight to the specific warm up unless they also struggle with mobility as well. So what I'll, I'm going to start with the general warm up just overall guidelines okay. for it and then go into the specific warm ups. So yeah. general warm ups the way that I like to structure it is uh first slight increase in uh in heart rate right? Increase heart rate, increase body temperature. And, and when I say slight increase in heart rate, it doesn't mean high intensity sprints. It means go on the treadmill for five minutes or just, just move around, just get some movement. You could walk back and forth. You could go on the treadmill, get on the bike, go on the elliptical. We just want to get the heart rate up a little bit. It should, mm -hmm. you should not be out of breath. It should be basically you just start moving and feel your body temperature increase. 
when you have this, this slight increase in heart and body temperature increase, maybe you'll start to sweat a little bit. You release synovial fluid, which helps lubricate your joints a little bit. And oftentimes we'll see an increase in mobility just from that, just from getting, you know, when you, you've been sitting in a chair for a long time, you get up and you feel super stiff and mm-hmm. then you just move around a little bit. All of a sudden you feel like you're a little bit more loose, same exact concept. We just want to move from there. Once you're a little bit loosened up and warmed up, then I start with mobility. Mobility comes first. So I, I do mobilization type exercises so so that we can increase range of motion. So uh, generally, I tend to go joint by joint. So I'll start off with the ankles, then go to the knees, then go to the hips. Uh, then I'll go to the thoracic spine and then go to the shoulders. And then sometimes I'll do some neck work as well. I think a lot of people have tight, stiff necks that can cause some real issues, especially if some people end up straining their neck when they're lifting. And that can be just resolved with a couple of good neck stretches prior and, and beforehand. But yeah. ankle mobility and then knee, your knees, you don't really need to work on mobility or most people don't, but uh, it's important to do some stability work for them. But I'll, I'll start off with some ankle mobilization exercises, then maybe a hip flexor stretch, then a thoracic extension rotation. And I'm going to explain this thoracic extension rotation so people can understand why this is important. A lot of people think that they have like tight shoulders, that their shoulders are an issue with their mobility. And some people might have an issue with their shoulders, but most shoulder mobility issues actually stem from your thoracic spine, which is your upper back. It's a portion of of your spine. It's the upper portion of your spine that is essentially what people think of when they think of their upper back. And to illustrate this, number one, what you have to understand is the, the shoulder joint is a ball and socket joint. It is the most mobile joint in the entire body. Uh, in fact, it's, it's almost so mobile to a detriment in which mm-hmm. it's very easy to, uh, to cause issues because of, of so much mobility with it. But thoracic spine, I want you to do this with me, Tony, do this with me. Everyone listening, do this with me, whether right. you're standing up, sitting down, whatever it is, I want you to hunch your back over. Okay, so hunch your back over like you have terrible posture, like really hunch and round over at the top of your back. Okay, cool. This is now how I am fr- when I'm looking at my phone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so you're hunched over like Quasimodo. I want you to put your arms out in front of you, still staying hunched over, and try and raise your arms over your head. Straight arms, raise them over your head and see how high you can bring your arms staying hunched over. Probably not able to raise your arms very high, right? Yeah, like 45, 50 degrees. Yeah, not much at all. Now, all I want you to do is get in good posture. Good posture, straight mm. straight back, straight spine. Now, do the same thing. Raise your arms over your head as far as they can go. How, oh, yeah. how does that feel? Is all it, the way can, up. In, all the way up, right? Immediately more range of motion. We did nothing to the shoulder. The shoulder joint remained exactly the same. All we did is we improved your posture by by extending your thoracic spine, by extending your upper back. So a Mm. lot of people, especially if you spend time either looking at your phone or at a desk, whatever it is, if you're hunched over, then you're you're not going to be able to use your shoulders appropriately. And then people end up hurting their shoulders because they have not improved their thoracic mobility. They're not in good posture. And this can create a lot of issues. So I always have at least one, if not two thoracic spine extension exercises, extension and rotation. Uh, and that's really the mobility portion. So it'll be ankle hips and then thoracic spine is really how we'll go through that. So starting off with mobility first and then moving to stability. 
Now, the reason that we do this is because when you're trying to make something stick, when you're trying to to make the mobility that you just created stick, it doesn't make sense to do uh, the stability first, right? So what we want to do is one of the major issues I have with people who only do yoga and no strength training is they're getting all this mobility in but they're doing nothing to actually strengthen the muscles that will hold them in that position, right? So this is where when people, I guarantee as soon as we start, we start talking about posture, people immediately sit up better and they immediately sit up there. They straighten out like, okay, cool. Good posture, reminding myself. And theoretically, it would be great if we could all just constantly remember and have these reminders to sit in good posture, but that's just practically not, and it's not going to work in real life. What you want is to number one, improve your mobility and number two, make that mobility stick. Well, how do we make that mobility stick is through stabilization exercises. And that is strength training overall. But I go from these mobility drills to then stabilization drills to then sort of make it stick and try and help it stick throughout the training session. So you can maintain good posture throughout the whole session. And then the actual strengthening of those muscles in good posture throughout the strength training session is what will allow you to maintain good posture, even when you're not thinking about it, which is really the goal. So from there, once you do the mobility, we go into stability exercises. So a couple simple ones starting off with sort of the ground up maybe just like a single leg balancing drill, which is really good for knee stability and ankle stability and hip stability. You do Mm -hmm. a single leg balancing drill, maybe like 10, 20, 30 seconds per side. You don't have to do this on a wobbly fucking ball. You can, most people have terrible balance on a single leg, no matter what, even on a stable surface. So don't get on a wobbly surface on a, on a BOSU ball or anything. Just stand on the ground for 30 seconds, maybe on one leg. And then switch to the other leg. If that's a little bit too easy, then put some cones on the ground or, or some some markers on the ground and like put one to the left of you, one out in front of you, and then one to the right of you and touch the cone while balancing on that one foot. You're going to feel mm-hmm. the, the intrinsic muscles of your feet working to stabilize yourself. You're going to improve your ankle stability, your knee stability, your hip stability. Uh, and that's going to be just a really good drill just to lock the lower body mobility improvements in. Uh, and then for the upper body, one of my favorites is, is called a, a scapular wall slide. And if you're in the inner circle, you have access to all of these videos, all of these. If you're in the inner circle, we have an entire warm-up manual. If you haven't checked that out yet in the manuals tab, we have an entire the, the inner circle guide to warming up. Please, please look at that. Um, nice. A scapular wall slide or we a, a simple one is a band pull-apart in which you essentially, whether you're doing the scapular wall slide or the band pull-apart, what you're doing is you're using the the muscles of your back in order to strengthen and stabilize in that better postural position. So long-winded answer, but basically start off with warming up, heat your body up five, seven minutes, whatever it is. Then you go into mobility exercises that should only take a couple minutes max and then stability exercises. And that should only take like one or two minutes as well. So a whole general warm-up could be between like 10 to 12 minutes. And if you already have sufficient mobility, which many women do, not all women, but many women do, then you can just go right into some stability work and then go mm-hmm. into your your specific warm up. And then for the specific warm ups, which is what what's the name of the person who asked this question? That was uh, Jen Spencer. Jen Spencer. Okay, so so Jen, she was asking more about the specific warm up, like how many sets and reps, like what do you do? So the specific warm up is what are you doing directly before? Like, let's just say we're going to go do squats, right? Okay, so we're going to go do heavy squats, 
how do you warm up specifically for squats? Well, you start off with the barbell and then you, you like no weight whatsoever. So you just no weight on the barbell. Let's say you're going to squat, I don't know, 225, right? That's 245 pound plates on each side. So first just do the barbell, just do a couple reps of that. Like I would do like generally maybe five to 10 reps of that. Then you put on 135, right? So 135, then you maybe do five reps of that. And then you go to 155. And then I would do like four reps of that. And then 175, three reps of that. And then I would do 205. And I would do two reps of that. And then I would go to 225. And that's my first set, right? So the way that I structure the specific warm up is start off with a little bit higher reps, five to 10 when it's very light. So it's not stressful at all. And then progressively go down in reps until you get to your first working set, which would be at 225 in this example. So 135 for five, 155 for four, 175 for three, 205 for two, and then 225 is your first working set for however many, maybe three sets of five there. So that's the the purpose of the specific warmup is just to get your body and mind and central nervous system in the groove of good technique and using it, but you don't want to to tire yourself out beforehand, which is why the warm-up sets should not be difficult. They should not be stressing you from a, a muscular perspective or a, a central nervous system perspective. They mm-hmm. should be just enough to get your body used to what it's about to do. And that's like for the first exercise of the day, you have the squat, but after the squat, you're probably already warmed up. Like you don't need many more warm-up sets for other exercises. So let's mm-hmm. say after the squats, you're going to go to do, I don't know, dumbbell Romanian deadlifts, right? You're going to do dumbbell Romanian deadlifts with 50 pounds. I mean, if you want, you could do one warm-up set with maybe 35 pounds per hand and then go into your first work set after. But after the first or second exercise, just jump right in. Like just, yeah. just start. You don't need to do a warm up for every single, I mean, it's going to take you four hours to get through the workout. So the most important specific warm up is the first exercise, maybe the second, if it's also a very, very heavy one, but if it's not, then I would just jump right into it. That's great. No, I've definitely, uh, spent a lot of time doing a lot of warm ups. It adds up and adds up question for you though. How much time are you spending? between warm-up sets? That's a great question. So, I mean, in terms of like specific warm-up sets? Yeah, the specifics. Like so the, let's say yeah. you're you're building up to your your maximal squat for the yeah, day. So, well, so, so it's a great question. What's important to remember here is 225 for in this example is a really, it, it's a, it's a strong squat. It's a heavy squat, right? And if anyone's going to be like, 225 is bitch weight. Shut the fuck up. Don't even listen to my podcast anymore. 225 is a heavy squat, okay? So let's use a different example this time. Let's say your squat is 135, which is still an amazing squat. You're squatting 135 for five reps. Well, now if if that's your maximal squat for five reps, now it's going to change a little bit because the bar is now significantly a significantly greater percentage of what you're about to lift, right? The bar in and of itself is 45 pounds. So if you're going to lift 135 instead of 225 and 135 is your max for five reps or so, well, now I'll say maybe the first warm up set is just 10 reps of your body weight, right? 10 reps of your body weight. Then you go to the barbell and then maybe you do five reps with the barbell and then you do four reps with um, 85 pounds, three reps with 105 pounds, 
two reps with 115 pounds, and then you go to your first warm-up set with, or your first work set at 135. So it's all relative based on how much you're lifting. But generally speaking, like because it's so light, the warm-up sets are still so light relative to your actual work set, uh, anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute max for the warm-up sets. They, they, it shouldn't be that much unless you are a very high-level power lifter and you're working up to, maybe you deadlift four, five, 600 pounds or your squat four, five, 600 pounds. Now you're going to take a little bit more time because inherently it takes a little bit more time to load the bar just with that much weight. But also, I mean, the stress and toll on your nervous system, it does increase as the weight increases. So if you're squatting 500 pounds, then you're probably going to end up taking, you might end up taking two or three minutes between squatting 400 to 450, even though it's like a, a relatively small percentage jump, you still might end up needing that amount of rest for, a, for that heavy of a weight. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the warm ups take some time, your general warm up. We've got a structure that has, you know, a lot of different movements as we go from power, maximal, basic, accessory, finisher. I've got a great question from N. Mitch Sweeney. What an awesome episode. Prompted me to seriously want to join Inner Circle. For episode two, can you address length of workouts for the average person who wants to be lean and build strength? Can I really get a solid workout in less than an hour if planning to strength train three to four times per week? Hmm. Great question. Great question. Uh, short answer is yes, absolutely. Second answer is I'm going to, we're going to have to sort of modify what I said regarding the, the warm ups before, because adding the general warm up can obviously add another five, 10, 15, 15. Mm -hmm. If you're working, if you're warming up for more than 15 minutes, you're doing it wrong. I'll never forget. I remember when I first, not when I first early ish on in my career, when I was about 22 23 i'll never forget this some some guy made a whole this is when basically the entire science-based fitness industry was just on facebook i don't even think instagram existed yet but <laughs> the, there's a whole facebook community of science-based fitness professionals and one of them made this whole post saying um your warm-up should be the number of minutes of your age so if you're 25 years old, your warm-up should be 25 minutes. If you're 45 years old, your warm-up should be 45 minutes. And I was like, this guy's a fucking idiot. I was like, this guy's never – like I, I work with people who are 50, 60, 70 years old. So you're saying their entire fucking – like a whole hour plus should be just warming up. It's ridiculous. 15 minutes should be the max for a warm-up. But you know, some people don't have that much time. They've got to get in and out. They've got to get a really good workout in. And yeah. so here's what I would say. And I'll, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because, you know, for I'll, I'll, I know this is a roundabout answer, but I was at the dentist recently and the dentist is literally my least favorite place on earth. Like I, I hate, I would rather be in a gulag than at the dentist and obviously not as a joke, <laughs> but like, I hate the dentist and I know I have dentists who listen and I love you. Thank you. I appreciate you, but I just don't like having medieval tools being put in my mouth and all. it's just, it's the worst. So the, when I go to the dentist, they're like, listen, you just do this, do this every day. And like I floss and brush every day. 
But everywhere you go, whether it's the dentist or it's the doctor or it's your personal trainer, everyone's like, yeah, just do this. Like it only takes a couple minutes a day, a couple minutes a day. Everybody who's an expert in their field wants you to prioritize what their field is. And it's like, if you took that advice from every single person, you wouldn't be able to do anything because everyone wants it just a couple minutes of your day. So I understand Mm -hmm. how difficult it is and how essentially it's impossible to do it for every single thing. But what I'm going to say right now is if you really want to prioritize your strength and your health and your fitness, then you're you're going to do this. Uh, and if you don't want to prioritize it, that's totally fine. It's your choice, but you just have to choose what your priority is. So if if your priority is getting the most out of your, your strength training and your workouts, but you j- legitimately do not have more than an hour in the gym, which is totally fine, I, I think most people don't have the luxury of having an hour in the gym, then I would say try and add, especially if you if you lack mobility, try and add mobility throughout your day. So for example, inner circle members know what a thoracic extension rotation is because I put it in your programming all the time. You can literally just get on the ground and do it at any point in time. You could do 10 reps per side right now. If you're on a phone call, sometimes I'll be on a phone call with a buddy and I'll just get down on the ground and I'll just do a thoracic extension rotation or I'll do a hip flexor stretch or I'll be on my walking pad, whatever it is. It's like as long as you're getting that mobility in somewhere, it doesn't have to be solely relegated to your time in the gym. You can do it at other times throughout the day and still get all the same benefits. So if you only have an hour in the gym, maybe as soon as you wake up, you make a deal with yourself, you're going to do a 30 second hip flexor stretch per side, and then 12 thoracic extension rotations per side. Boom, done every single day. You do that every day for a year, you're going to seriously improve your mobility. There's just no way around it. And then that way, once your mobility is improved, maybe you don't even need that general part of the general warm up anymore. Maybe you can eliminate that. So you're good and you don't even need it because you, you have adequate mobility. Mm-hmm. So the short answer is yes, you can. All of the inner circle workouts the strength training portion of it can be done within an hour. I would say if there are some people who are unbelievably strong, the stronger you are, the longer the workout's going to take. Because for example, when I was deadlifting over 500 pounds, it would take a long time just to load the fucking bar and unload the bar. You know, there's just a long time of loading and unloading and then rest between sets. I mean, if if I'm deadlifting 225, it's only four total big plates. But if I'm deadlifting 530, well, that's that's over 10 plates per side. It's like it, 10 plates in total. It's just it adds way more time. So the stronger you get, the longer it's going to take. But for general strength, for overall health and wellness, in and out in an hour, yes, absolutely. As long as you're actually adhering to the rest periods, you're not like, I mean, I'll go in and I'll, I recently saw a guy sitting on the bench press FaceTiming who I assume was his girlfriend. I was like, all right, man, like if you want to be on your phone for a little bit, I don't know, look at your workout or you're texting someone fine. But this guy was on the bench press, just FaceTiming for like 20 minutes. It's like, all right, brother, like this, I hope you know, you're not fucking working out right now. Like that's just because you're in the gym. So long roundabout answer. Yes, you absolutely can get an amazing workout in an hour or less. Uh, most inner circle workouts, uh, the actual strength training portion is between 45 to 75 minutes, depending on how strong you currently are and how strictly you adhere to the rest periods. Most members, as long as they're adhering to the rest periods, they're in and out within an hour. Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, from my own experience, when I'm learning a movement, it takes me more time. I might be watching yes. a video. I might be more conscious about 
you know, going slow through the movement to really feel like I'm doing it right. And so those are actually efficiencies that you pick up as you get more comfortable with the program. You don't have to stop and think, okay, how do we do these rear delt pulls or whatever? You just go bang from from movement to movement. You know, by the end of the program, it's kind of like a dance that you've learned. Dude, this is why I'm so glad you're on the podcast with me. It's such an amazing point. It's a, it's a super important point. And, you know, for example, in the inner circle, we, we put out a new program every month, every month you get a brand new program and the first week might take you a little bit longer than weeks two, three, and four. You'll probably end up getting faster every week because you get more and more accustomed to it. You get used to it. The first week you're learning the new movements. You're trying to figure out how much weight you're going to use. It's like, it's a little bit more of a learning curve, but then weeks two, three, and four, it gets faster, faster, faster because you know exactly what's going on, how to do it, what weights to get. It's uh, It just gets easier every subsequent week. Yeah, totally. So speaking of movement patterns and, and learning, I've got a question from AJ HJR. I'm pretty sure that's on the birth certificate. Um, <laughs> the podcast is empowering, filled with practical knowledge, science, encouragement, and motivation for fitness health journey. I have a question on best tips to adhere to a program when working out in a perpetually crowded urban gym. We have two barbell racks and two bench press racks, and they are full, usually with one or two folks waiting. What I try to do is understand what movement patterns are being worked in a given barbell exercise and try to duplicate as best as I can with dumbbells or kettlebells. Is this right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. That's 100% exactly right. It's It's obviously not ideal, especially especially as you reach higher levels of strength and you want to challenge yourself more, there's nothing wrong with dumbbell or kettlebell workouts. I love them. And I, we have dumbbell and kettlebell only workouts in the inner circle. The only issue is you're inherently limited by how much weight you're going to be able to lift. That's what's great about a barbell, a barbell. It it gives you the opportunity to load it differently on your body. So you can load much, much, much more weight on, um, and I'll say, I think this is worth discussing. And this is something I've really been thinking more about as I've gotten older. You don't need to lift with a barbell in order to be strong enough to be healthy and capable in life. Mm-hmm. That's an important thing to understand. And, and keep in mind, I'm a world record power lifter and I love the barbell. And I think there's so many amazing things about it. But if your goal has nothing to do with with lifting a barbell or being the strongest with a barbell, and you just want to get in and out of the gym, be healthy and strong and capable and fit, you could just use dumbbells and kettlebells and and mimic those movements and you'll be absolutely totally fine. You don't need to lift the barbell. With that being said, if you really want to challenge your strength, you're going to need a barbell in some capacity because after a certain point, you won't be for, let's look at squats as an example. You can do goblet squats instead of barbell squats, but after a certain point, the limiting factor in the goblet squat will no longer be your legs. It's actually going to be how much weight you can actually hold up in your hands with a dumbbell. And, and that's assuming that the gym that you're at even has heavy enough weights to get there. Cause I've worked with a lot of people throughout my career and people who didn't think they would ever be able to lift, I don't know, a hundred pounds or something. They, they had no idea. I've worked with, with moms who work multiple jobs, have, have several kids who can goblet squat 75 pounds. Like it's their job, like no problem. 75 pound goblet squat is, is a very strong goblet squat. You're holding a very heavy weight in your hands and it's, it's super difficult, but it gets to a point where 
your legs are no longer the limiting, the limiting factor. It's how much weight you're holding in your hands. And so if you want to challenge yourself more, the barbells is, is it becomes essential because you can load it onto your back and it allows you to lift heavier weight and challenge your legs much, much more. Um, now, you could do a leg press, for example, instead of a squat. Obviously, not all the exact same benefits, but it, it's so funny. Like, and I'm going on so many different tangents here, but personally, I don't use a leg press. I actually, I didn't even know that we had a leg press here in my gym at my building. I, I write my wife's programming, and, and uh, now that she's several months postpartum, she's really getting back into much heavier lifting. And I was writing her new program last night, and the first thing I'll always ask is what is one exercise that you love that you definitely want me to, to include for your lower body and one exercise you love you want me to include for your upper body and what's one exercise you hate that you don't want me to include for your lower body and what exercise you hate you don't want to include for your upper body so these are always the, the first questions i ask whenever i write her program and and really anyone's program but this one of the things secrets to a good marriage right here <laughs> but the one of the things that she said she loves is the leg press and so she asked to put the leg press in and I, and I didn't even i was like do we have a leg press at our gym she's like yeah there's a leg press downstairs the point of me saying this is because i prefer the barbell and it's it's part of my bias but it's also part of my nostalgia my history like i love the barbell and I think there are many, many benefits to the barbell. But what I really think there are more benefits to than anything else is just being strong. Whether you're strong with the barbell or whether you're strong on the squat rack or, or on the uh, the leg press, strong is strong, period. And yes, you get a little bit more stabilization benefit from using the barbell as opposed to the leg press. Uh, on the other hand, you get a little bit more isolation benefit in the leg press because you don't have to stabilize as much as you do with the barbell. So whether you're doing the barbell or the leg press or whatever it is you're doing strong is strong. And as long, and I, I want to get into progressive overload soon so that we can, cause I think there's a lot of confusion about it. Oh, as yeah. long as you're getting stronger and progressively overloading your muscles, that's the most important part. And that's, what's difficult with dumbbells and kettlebells. Once you've gotten to be very advanced with those tools is because you are no longer able to progressively overload in the same way as you are with a barbell or like a, a, a leg press. That's the great part about a barbell or leg press is you can progressively overload essentially to infinity. Mm -hmm. Whereas with dumbbells and kettlebells, it's, it gets very difficult once you reach an advanced level of strength. The good news is most people never reach an advanced level of strength. They're just, it, it, they just don't do it, whether it's because of consistency or it's because they're not actually trying to progressively overload or any number of things. It's uh, most people never get there. But if you really, really, really want to challenge your strength and to, to see how far you can go, you'll either need a barbell and or a leg press in order to, to challenge yourself uh, sufficiently. Yeah. And in this situation, you know, let's say you're on a program and it's calling for a, you know, an overhead bench press, right? Or an overhead press, excuse me. But the barbell rack is full. What if you can't approximate the weight that you need with the dumbbells that they have in the facility or the kettlebells? Is it still worth it to go through that movement pattern with a lower weight? And oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not actually in upper body movements are easier than lower body movements yeah, because totally. I mean, most people are not maxing out the dumbbell rack with their shoulder press, myself included, like nowhere yeah. close. Um, and, and that's for many, many reasons, not least of which generally speaking, your, your upper body will be weaker than your lower body. 
if your upper body's stronger than your lower body, there's some weird stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I, sh- I should have used deadlift, like as I was saying it. I was like, yeah, yeah, but stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, but still, I, I'm glad that you actually use that example because, I mean, for upper body work, like you essentially never need a barbell. I mean, if you want to, great, but you don't need it. And frankly, I actually prefer dumbbells over barbell for most upper body work. I, I like the barbell for like bench press and overhead press just from like the, the maximal strength perspective, but from a muscle recruitment perspective and, and mm-hmm. line of pull and all that, I actually prefer the dumbbells because you can manipulate the angle of the dumbbells. When you're doing a dumbbell bench press, you can get them at a 45 degree angle and you can change it so it feels good on your shoulders and so it hits the muscle a bit more more effectively whereas with the barbell you're locked into that one position with your shoulders and your hands and your wrist you're locked in you can't manipulate the barbell position at all so um in, in that instance i actually think it, it might even be there's a there's a case for it being more effective yeah and and so you know just to to piggyback on that from last time you know, maybe that's a great way to think about uh, programming variety from program to program, right? Like if you've been doing bench press for a long time, maybe you should do some dumbbells in a pressing movement because that's going to change the movement pattern, but still recruit, you know, a similar muscle group for that goal, right? Yeah. Not only similar, it recruits the exact same muscle group, right? And there's been a huge push in, I'd say the last year or so of some personal trainers being super, super picky of being like, all right, so it has to be at exactly this line of pull in order to get the maximal recruitment of the muscle. Shut the fuck up. I don't care. Like you're using your pecs. If you're doing a dumbbell bench press, you're using your pecs, your shoulders, and your triceps. There are ways to make it more effective, but to pretend like make it like moving a couple degrees over in a different direction is going to make the difference in your your pec separation or your like it has a much greater impact on your strength than it actually does muscle recruitment. Hmm. So and this is this is the difference between performance and aesthetics which I we I know we spoke about in terms of goals. It's when you're talking about how much force you can produce, how much weight you can lift, it's a game of centimeters. Like centimeters matter when we're talking about how much can you maximally lift. And this is where technique becomes so important, especially as you're trying to lift as much weight as possible, because centimeters truly do matter when it comes to maximal force production. Hmm. But when it comes to muscle recruitment, it's not a game of centimeters. It's more a game of, I would say, inches where like you have much more wiggle room in terms of manipulating what you're doing and how you're doing it in order to make sure you're the most important part of, of really from an aesthetics perspective is number one, making sure you're not getting injured, making sure your technique is good enough just to keep you safe. But what a lot of people don't realize is you can do so many different exercises with so many different techniques and still train the exact same muscles. Right. It's it's people way over complicate muscle recruitment, the, the muscle recruitment aspect of this. And I think a lot of coaches do it deliberately because they want to stand out in a sea of fitness professionals and they want to sound super smart. They want to make it seem like this coach is, is so much better than other coaches with all this knowledge of muscle recruitments and lines of pull and all that stuff. And it's it's interesting to learn if you care about the science, but practical application. I mean, you could find high level bodybuilders with incredible physiques who all use 
different techniques in terms of like their dumbbell, their barbell, their, their, their bench press, that they all use a different technique, all use a different angle, and they're all developing incredibly muscular physiques. It's, it's not like that's making the biggest difference. What really makes the biggest difference, and this might be a good segue is progressive overload. Are you progressively overloading the muscle? If you are not progressively overloading your muscles, then your muscles will not grow, period, end of story. If you are progressively overloading your muscles, then they will grow even if your technique is a little bit different than what Joe Schmo on Instagram says is, is optimal line of pull. Yeah. We've been skating around this for a minute, so I'm just going to give you the question. This is uh, Cox 3456 not going to laugh. All right. The podcast about planning your own program is one of the best. I gained so much information about how I should progress through my workouts. I would love to hear more about progressive overload. It's a concept that confuses me and I feel like I add weight too quickly. I mean, this is really the basis of all effective strength training. Uh, this is, this is the basis of, of, any improvement you want to make. And it, you know, it's funny, it's sort of a metaphor for life. If we really think about it, it's not just strength training. If you want to get better at anything, you need to progressively overload in that thing. We could look at, I mean, I'm trying to think of a, of a different example, but let's say, um, I don't know, you're studying science in college. Like you could take a biology 101 course but if you really want to understand deeper level biology, well, you, you have to go above the one-on-one course. You have to go to the 200s, 300s, whatever it is. You have to progressively overload and understand more and dive in deeper and do more and do more and do more. Uh, if you if you want to start your own business and uh, and you you want to reach a certain level of wealth, well, you can start by you you can build a, a base level of wealth with not zero effort, but relatively low effort. But if you want to be like the top 1%, then you need to progressively overload. You need to do more. You need to be the best. You need to give away this. You need to put more effort in on a consistent basis than other people. And then then you what your previous self did. That's really what progressive overload is about, is being better than who you were prior in any aspect of life. And so in terms of strength training, progressive overload on the most basic level just simply means that you are stressing your muscles more than you have previously. That's what it means on the most basic level. Hmm. If you, cause what's going to happen is your body is very good at adapting to the stress placed upon it. That's, that's what our body does. You and, and our bodies are so good at adapting when you really think about it it's it's unbelievable it's it's really crazy it's uh we're so good at adapting to our environments we can even do it in a matter of minutes so for example i'm sure many people will relate to this maybe you've been in your car and you have the radio on you're listening to music and and you're listening to music and then all of a sudden you're like yeah you know i want to turn the sound up so you turn the sound up a little bit and then 10, 15 minutes goes by, you turn the sound up a little bit more and then 10, 15 minutes go by, turn the sound up a little bit more. And then you turn the car off 
you get out. And then the next time you get back in the car, you turn it on and boom, the music is blasting. You're like, what the hell? Like, how did it get so loud? You're, you're adapting over time. And it's, this is just one example of how good we are at adapting, but we can adapt in so many different situations. Like that's, that's why we, that's why we're here now. That's why our species isn't extinct at this point, because we can adapt and adapt and adapt and adapt. So let's say as a basic example, when you start lifting weights, you can dumbbell bench press 15 pounds per hand. And and maybe it's like really shaky and it's not that good, but you can do 15 pounds per hand. Well, if you only ever dumbbell bench press 15 pounds per hand, you're not going to be get, you can't get stronger because you're not overloading your muscles. You are not going to, uh, to, you've already adapted to it. You've changed. So maybe now like it's not shaky anymore and you can do more reps with them, but your, your maximal strength is not going to improve if you never lift heavier weight. So the most basic form of progressive overload is just simply trying to lift heavier weight. Now there's a lot to discuss here. There are other ways to progressively overload as well, but also how often should you progressively overload? But the most basic way is, well, so let's say you're doing dumbbell bench press for 10 reps, right? And you start off with the 15 and it's really shaky and cool. And now you get, you can get 10 reps with it. Well, then you go up to, to 20 pound dumbbells per hand, and then maybe you can only get six reps. Well, cool. So you stick with the 20 pounds until you can get 10 reps. And then once you can get 10 reps, cool. Then you go up to 25 pounds and then maybe you can only get four or five reps. Cool. You stick with the 25 pounds until you can get 10 reps with it. And then you go up to 30 pounds. And this process will take months and months, if not years of progressively doing this. But what a lot of people overlook is that simply doing one more rep with that same weight is progressive overload. Right. So if you, if you start off with 15s and you can get 10, then you jump to 20s and you can only get six reps with 20 pound dumbbells. Well, if you get six reps on week one and then you get six reps on week two and then you get six reps on week three and then you get seven reps on week four, that's progressive overload. Yeah. That's like that one rep is progressive overload. And a lot of people, they go to the gym and they expect to get stronger every single workout. You need to get that out of your fucking head. That's that's like expecting the scale to go down every single day or every single week. That's just, it's just, it's not how it works. Weight loss is not linear going down. Strength gain is not linear going up. Progressive overload is the most important thing to keep track of. This is why you need to keep track of the weights you're using and the amount of sets and reps you're doing. This is why we have that included in the Inner Circle app. So you can always remember exactly not only how much weight you used in the last week or during this program, but your all-time weights. For this exercise, what's the most you've ever lifted in this exercise? So you can always go back to it and see if you're progressively overloading. But so using the same example, you know, you get six reps week one, six reps week two, six reps week three, seven reps week four, cool, progressive overload. But you're not changing anything until you get 10 reps with that weight yet. So then, you know, week five, seven reps, week six, seven reps, week seven, eight reps, week nine, nine reps, week 10, nine reps, week 11, nine reps, week 12, 10 reps, boom. And maybe they were really shitty 10 reps. Maybe there were there was like 10 reps, but the last two were super shaky and not good. Well, cool. Now you can go keep going until all 10 reps look perfect. 
that's progressive overload. This is another form of progressive overload. It's mm-hmm. not just about adding more weight. It's not just about adding more reps. It's also about doing the same weight and the same number of reps with better technique. Mm-hmm. With be- Using better technique is another form of progressive overload. So if you at first could only do 10 reps, you could do 10 reps of the weight, but it was shitty technique the last three reps. Well, now if you make those last three reps perfect technique, that's progressive overload. If you were if you were shorting the range of motion, you were not using it a full range of motion, but now you can do that exact same weight with the full range of motion, that's progressive overload. If you were doing that same weight and that same reps, but before you needed to rest three minutes in between sets, and now you only need to rest two minutes in between sets and you can get the same amount of of sets and reps in with that weight with less rest that's progressive overload there's so many ways let's say uh, you can increase time under tension so let's say you're doing 10 reps but you know you're doing a one second eccentric and a one second concentric well let's say you slow that down to a three second eccentric and a one second concentric. If you can do the same amount of sets and reps and weight with a slower eccentric, that's progressive overload. You're increasing the amount of time that your muscles are under stress from that weight. So now that the total amount of time of that set, the total amount of time that your muscles are stressed lifting this weight that is progressive overload. Now, the way that we test it often boils down to, well, how much weight are you lifting? But lifting more weight is not the only way to progressively overload the muscles. And, and, you know, one of the ways that a lot of people think about progressive overload and a lot of people talk about progressive overload, um, have you ever heard the story of, of Milo of Croton, Tony? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Right. So Milo Croton is, you know, the story, according to legend, uh, this, this guy, Milo, he trained, he trained every day by carrying a calf like this, this baby cow every day from the, the cow, the calf was born until it became a full sized ox. And every day he carried, he carried this calf and he carried it and he carried it and carried it until, and you can, if you Google search the story of Milo, you'll find, you know, Milo getting bigger and stronger as he continues to carry this calf to a cow, to an ox. And, and essentially this is how a lot of people look at progressive overload and they, or they explain it. I think it's a little bit short-sighted because you're not going to increase weight every single day or every single week, or even every single month. It's, it's not as simple as that. And there also is a limit. There's a genetic limit that how much you're going to be able to lift in total, but the overall story I do like from the perspective of you need to be challenging yourself every day. You need to challenge yourself. And that sort of leads to the question of, well, what if you have a day where you don't feel good or a week where you don't feel good? Hmm. Challenging yourself every day doesn't mean you need to beat who you were yesterday. It just means you need to be the best you can be today. So if you go in today and, you know, last week you, you, I don't know, deadlifted, 225, whatever it is, you deadlifted 225, but today you go in and your back is feeling cranky or whatever. I'm not even going to use the, that back cranky example. Cause that one is a, that's a different story. Maybe you're just tired. You didn't sleep well. Maybe you're like me, you've got a new baby and you're a little bit exhausted. And so the best you could do today was 185 instead of 225. That's okay. You just need to be the best you can be today. Eventually, you're going to have to go in if you want to lift more than 225, then you're going to have to lift more. But what's important to remember is 
every single day is not going to be a day that you progressively overload in the same way that when you're dieting, not every single day is going to be in a calorie deficit. It's not going to be that every single day. Some days you're going to go over some days what something's going to happen. That's okay. It's the net total over a long period of time that really matters. So you don't have to progressively overload every single time you step in the gym, but over the course of three months, you better have been trying to progressively overload in terms of how much weight you're lifting, how many reps you're doing, the quality of your technique, the time under tension. These are all things that allow you to progressively overload. And what's important to really think about here is when you remove the the need to increase weight every single week, training actually becomes much more enjoyable and you yeah. can focus on equally, if not more important factors of progressive overload where you focus on using better technique, using more time under tension, really focusing on, on using the right muscles. And then you can say, you know what, maybe I haven't increased weight in four weeks, but I'm using the same weight with better technique, better range of motion. I feel much stronger, more confident with this weight. So then when you do move up in weight, you're actually safer and stronger and healthier for it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm not quite sure if if we covered this, but let's just review. You know, you're going to hit a point where you can't lift more weight, right? Even if that doesn't happen, if you've been consistently lifting for the, the same lifts, progressively overloading for four weeks, for six weeks, at some point you're going to switch your program, right? Can you just go over the length of program again real quick for a beginner versus an advanced lifter uh, before you switch movements? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, like everything, there's so many discussions and, and disagreements around this. Generally speaking, a beginner can stick with the same program for much longer than an advanced trainee. And there are so many reasons for this, but a the more advanced you are, the more quickly your body is going to adapt. Whereas you've trained your body to adapt more quickly to certain things. Whereas the the more of a beginner you are, the longer it takes and the more time you can spend on that one movement and, and the more you can get out of it. So a beginner can do the same program. I mean, I, I've had beginners on the same program for 12 weeks straight. No, they literally follow the same program uh, for 12 weeks straight. And, and they continue to get stronger for those entire 12 weeks. Whereas an advanced trainee, it's usually between four to six weeks at most before they change programs, the inner circle programs, they change every four weeks. And there are a number of reasons for this, not just physiological, but also psychological and, and just practically, mm -hmm. um, I personally like to change my own training programs every four weeks, every four weeks I change. And that's just what I found to be most the best for me from an enjoyment perspective, as well as progress perspective. When I was an elite, elite power lifter, I actually changed them every three weeks because my body was so good at adapting and, and I, I needed to change it every three weeks. But now it's every four weeks, I'll change my program. For the inner circle, one of the reasons we changed it every four weeks Aside from just the the importance of, of changing the program so, so your body uh, can get these new movements and new opportunities to grow, from a psycho psychological perspective, after four weeks, sometimes it just gets boring. Mm. It just gets boring to do the same program over and over and over again. And it, it works out really well because every four weeks, the way that you know our calendar is, we have a new month. 
So cool. So basically the way we we designed it is every month you get a new program, which is really what I've always done with all of my clients, one-on-one clients. They get a new program every four weeks and just works out that way with our calendar. We have a new a new month. So on the first every every month, we publish a brand new program and you can start that. So yeah, that that's generally how it works. The the beginner program in the inner circle, the unicorn strong challenge, that's a 12-week program, but it actually it consists of three different four-week phases. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that is to introduce someone to strength training who hasn't really done it before or at least not on like a on a high level so they understand barbell, they understand these basic movements and it progresses them through all the things they'll need to know once they advance to the monthly additions to the the new monthly workouts. So by the time someone finishes the unicorn strong challenge that in a 90-day program, they might not be intermediate in terms of their strength levels yet, but they're definitely intermediate in terms of their knowledge of technique and how to lift and and how to strength train. Yeah, that's awesome. So I've got this next question from Ali Dodge W. I listened to the entire two-hour pod plus podcast about the topic of programming and loved it. Maybe I'm just a fitness nerd, but I love how Jordan simplifies everything and makes the content relatable to anyone at any level. I did have a question that I hope he can answer in the follow-up episode. I've been following a progressive overload program for about 1.5 years that after listening to the first podcast, I believe to be structured very similarly to how Jordan prefers to program. There are some movements that no matter how often they are programmed, and often in various different ways, tempo versus heavy versus endurance, I can never seem to improve. These things for me are often upper body, pull-ups or chin-ups, barbell bent over rows. How do I progress past these plateaus, or have I just reached my maximum capacity for these lifts, assuming I can't dedicate any more time to training? Thanks for all the great information that you provide. Great question. And I really appreciate the kind words. So thank you so much. It was funny as I was listening to it, I I try and guess what people are going to say. And I would have gotten it wrong if I had guessed what she was going to say Mm. when she was saying which movements that she, I was expecting her to say something like a lateral shoulder raise, Mm -hmm. um, or a front shoulder raise, or, or maybe a tricep extension, because the reason a, a lot of people struggle to increase weight on those exercises, like these small isolation exercises, because they're tiny muscles and it takes a lot longer to increase the strength in something like your, your lateral shoulder raise than let's say a, a, a bench press, right? With a, sh- a lateral shoulder raise, never mind it's such a smaller muscle, but the leverages are way more difficult. If you watch really, really, really strong people in the gym doing lateral shoulder raises, like they're not using very much weight. Oftentimes it's 25, 30 pounds, like with, with this exercise. Um, so I know a lot of people get frustrated with something like a a front shoulder raise, lateral shoulder raise, tricep extension, because they feel like they're not using much weight and it's not increasing very quickly. But the reality is you're not going to be lifting tremendous amounts of weight for these exercises ever. It's just, it's, it's not your, the progressive overload with these exercises will be not necessarily just based on lifting more, but also using better technique, more time under tension. And when you do increase weight, it's going to be few and far between, like it's going to be a long time in in between uh, when you, when you increase weight on those exercises. But I know she said she's been struggling with like chin-ups and bent over rows. Was there another one in there? And pull-ups. So yeah, all pulls. Okay. All so all pulls. pulls. So, so I'll start by saying chin-ups and pull-ups are among the most difficult exercises ever, especially for women. Generally speaking, 
women have a much harder time with upper body strength than than men do. And on the reverse, men have a much harder time with lower body strength than women do. And this is just like biology. This is just generally like there are pros and cons to everything, right? Advantages and disadvantages. And I mean, this is why, you know, we can see so many women almost very quickly being able to do barbell hip thrust with like 315, 365, 405, like almost within a few months, I've seen women been able to do that. It's insane how quickly they can improve their lower body strength, uh, especially their hip hinging strength relative to men. Men take much longer than women do there. But upper body tends to be much more difficult for women and um, especially chin-ups and pull-ups. I mean, these are just brutally difficult exercises. Now, what's important to understand about that is number one, they're, they're very, very difficult. Number two is the rate at which you will increase strength in these movements is much slower than, than other exercises. You will almost always, almost always increase strength in pull-ups and chin-ups and, and rows much more slowly than you will squats and deadlifts and lunges and things like that. It's just, it's, it's the unfortunate truth and reality. So you have to understand that. The, the thing that I do that I've noticed with all of the exercises that this woman actually mentioned, chin-ups, pull-ups, and, and rows, is they respond incredibly well to different high-intensity training techniques that allow you to uh, – I'll just explain my personal favorite. My personal favorite high-intensity training technique for these specific movements are called cluster sets. And if you're in the inner circle – you know what I'm talking about because I program them regularly for these exercises because they're so effective. A cluster. Did I explain cluster sets in the last episode, Tony? No, I don't believe so. Okay. So there are many different types of intensity techniques and training techniques you can use. When most people think of strength training, they think like three sets of 10, right? And, and that's what's called a straight set where you do one set of 10 reps, rest, another set of 10 reps and rest. And you do all of the reps in that set just straight. That's it's a straight set. A cluster set, and if you've never done a cluster set, you got to program it after or just join the inner circle link in the show notes because I'll program them for you. But cluster sets are one of the best, best, best intensity techniques you can use to increase maximal strength, especially in chin-ups, pull-ups, and bent over rows, uh, especially chin-ups and pull-ups. But let's just use that. Um, we'll use a straight set example. Instead of three sets of 10, we'll use three sets of six because this is a maximal strength exercise, right? So if you really want to improve your maximal strength and we'll say a chin-up, then Again, we're not going to go for 10 reps. We're going to go for between three to six reps, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, as well as in the previous one. So instead of doing a straight set of six reps for a chin-up, a cluster set would look like you do two reps, then you'd rest about 10 seconds, two reps, rest about 10 seconds, and then two more reps, and then you'd rest for two minutes. And that is one set. That is one cluster set. Now, the great part about cluster sets is they actually allow you to lift at a higher intensity, so lift more weight without getting as fatigued. The issue with a straight set in this example is three sets of six is maybe by maybe by the fourth or fifth rep, you're exhausted, you're tired because you have no rest in between these reps. But let's say you, you're doing three sets of two, 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 this cluster set of two reps, rest, two reps, rest, two reps. This allows you to get the exact same total amount of work in 
the exact same. You just have this little bit of extra rest in between reps so that you can complete all of the reps, which allows your muscles to, to get all of the exact same stimulus. Just it takes a little bit longer and that's going to allow you to grow a little bit more and get a little bit stronger. So I will do so many different types of cluster sets. I'll do like three. So the way that I, I write it out, it'll be like three times three X two dash two dash two. If I write three times two dash two dash two, that's three sets of two reps, rest, two reps, rest, two reps. You do that three times, but maybe I'll do a cluster set of three times two dash two dash two dash two. So it'll be eight total reps, or maybe I'll do three times three dash two dash one. That would be three reps, rest, two reps, rest, mm. one rep. And then that would be that whole set. So there's many ways to structure it. But when I'm working with someone who's really struggling to increase their chin-ups or increase their pull-ups or increase their, their bent over rows, I'll do cluster sets. That's my, my first go-to movement it, or my go-to uh, intensity technique is we're going to add a little bit of rest in between these, these reps. And we're just going to allow you to recover a little bit so you didn't can attack the yeah. subsequent reps more efficiently. So you get the exact same total amount of work in it's the exact same weight, the exact same total amount of work, total reps, total sets, total weight, but that little bit of extra rest allows you to get more intensity in. And so this was actually for me, one of the best things I did when I was really trying to improve my weighted chin-ups, like there was a time when I was stuck with an extra 45 pounds around my waist, trying to do weighted chin-ups. It was really, really difficult to, to actually get more reps in or to increase the weight. So what I did is I kept the weight the same, but I did cluster sets mm-hmm. or I even would slightly increase the weight. I would do more weight, but fewer reps. And I would just do those cluster sets. And man, when I tell you that like the rate at which my strength improved with these cluster sets is unbelievable. The trick here though, and what's important to remember is you can't do them and you shouldn't do them every single training program for the same movement. So I'm not doing cluster sets for chin-ups two months in a row. I'll do cluster sets one month and then straight sets the next month. And then maybe cluster sets the next month, then straight sets. And then maybe I'll do a different type of intensity technique, but you don't want to do it every single month for the same movement. Cause again, your body will adapt. So you, you want to avoid that adaptation. And, and you also need to remember with cluster sets generally, cause you can actually increase the intensity with it is if you do it too much, maybe you'll end up getting some, some tendonitis. You'll end up aggravating a joint. Mm-hmm. Um, you you want to save it for a very specified time in your training. That's why we have an entire program in the inner circle. It's called the chin-up specialization program. And if, if anyone who's ever done that is going to be nodding their head this whole time because they know how many cluster sets I put in there. There are specialized times in which you can include these types of sets and these types of intensity techniques regularly, but not for very long. You want to do it, use it, get the benefit, and then move on to something different and continue to to progress. Man, that's awesome. That that's the secret sauce of this episode. I'm calling it. Um, <laughs> now, is this something you can apply to other movements as well, or is this really you really uh, specifically find it helpful for chin ups, pull ups, that kind of thing? Yes, you can. So you can apply this to. I, I I've done this a lot with deadlifts. The issue with deadlifts is. Once you reach a very advanced level of deadlift, 
an, an intensity technique like this takes an unbelievable amount. It takes an unbelievable toll on you, not just physically, but also from your central nervous system perspective. So for example, if I'm doing a cluster set for deadlifts and let's assume that I, I can still deadlift over 500 pounds, which I can't at this point, cause there's, I don't, I can't anymore. Um, but let's just assume I could, if I'm deadlifting over 500 pounds for, for, a couple reps and then I'm doing a cluster set. Well, maybe I'm doing cluster sets with like 450 pounds. So I'm doing two dash two dash two. I might not be able to do 450 pounds for a straight set of six, but I could do it for two dash two dash two. That is a huge amount of stress on my body. And that's going to take a long time to recover from. Mm -hmm. So it works really well for lower body lifts, like squats and deadlifts. If you are beginner to intermediate, but as you become advanced, it can take a huge toll on you because the amount of stress that puts on your central nervous system is just, it's tremendous. So it always works well for upper body, regardless of how beginner or advanced you are, because you're inherently limited by how much weight you're going to lift with your upper body. Lower yeah. body, you can almost always lift more than upper body, men and women. But upper body, you're, you're almost always limited. So it, it's not, it doesn't take nearly as much of a toll on your nervous system lower body, it, it takes a big toll. The other issue though, and we could look at an upper body exercise like bench press. I never program cluster sets for bench press in the inner circle, not because they aren't effective. They're actually super effective for bench press. But I, I know a lot of people in the inner circle are lifting without spotters. And, and they don't have a spotter in order to, to watch them. Maybe they lift on their own in their basement or any number of reasons they might not have a spotter. I'm not going to program a cluster set for bench press in the inner circle when there are so many people doing that program because I know so many of them won't have a spotter and it's it becomes a safety issue. It becomes a safety issue if you don't have a spotter and if you if you it's also very difficult like because with the cluster set for the bench press you re-rack the barbell in between every cluster. Every like for example every cluster of two you re-rack the barbell. You don't just hold it over your face that would take take the point away from the cluster from the rest period. So I don't program for that because it, it, if you don't have a spotter, it's going to be way more difficult and more yeah. likely of injury and all of that. So there are practical measures and, and things you have to take into consideration outside of just simply how effective it is. But if someone does have a spotter for bench press, absolutely use it for that as well. Cause it's another amazing, amazing strategy. I, I actually cluster sets are one of the main things I'll use for pushups. Pushups are such a low risk exercise. Like worse comes to worse. You just you just you're, you flop on the ground, no big deal. Cluster sets are one of the best things I will program for beginners who are trying to get their first push up or first ten push ups. I will program cluster sets for them all the time. It's very low stress in the central nervous system. It's just a body weight exercise. It's not really uh, it's you're not taking a huge toll on yourself. The, the risk of of injury is super super low, and the effectiveness of this intensity technique on a push up is just outrageous. So. Almost every upper body exercise cluster sets are great for lower body as well, but you have to be more particular and pay attention to your current level of, of how advanced you are. Hey, just give me one second, please. Hey, so sorry about that. All good, bro. Everything okay? Yep. I just had to run to the restroom. <laughs> I had this mushroom tea earlier, and I think maybe that. <laughs> yeah. Bro, um, we got to keep this in the pod. <laughs> you cannot cut that out <laughs> uh -oh, uh -oh. all right so this one's 
man, so many people ask this question or some form of it. So we definitely got to hit this one. Um, this is by Skibby 11223344565. The episode, How to Design Your Own Workout Program, has by far been my favorite podcast of yours. Keep up the great work. My question for you is, how would you structure a program for someone who is building a base for endurance running but still wants to strength train? Thanks for all the great and free content you put out. P.S. I'm really enjoying following along your mini cut. It's so informative. I love that. Thank you for the kind words. So just to, to reiterate the question, how would you, can you just repeat the question part? How would you structure a program for someone who is building a base for endurance running, but still wants to strength train? And there, yeah. there's so many versions of this question. People doing trail running, people who compete in racing, but want to strength train. Yeah. How, how do you do both? So so the number one question is the number one thing to understand is you can do both. There are people who will say you can't do both. Like you can, with that being said, you will not be able to optimize both at the same time. And that's okay. We don't need to be optimal at everything at the same time. It, a lot of people get discouraged when you hear that. It's not a bad thing. We have, we focus on one and we, we slowly improve the other. And then we focus on the other. And then we, it's like, it's, it's a give and take. Okay. So Based on this question, the other questions that are similar to it, I'm going to assume in this scenario that running is the main goal. Long distance running is the main goal and strength is a sub goal. And that's totally fine. With that in mind, the priority goes to running. So if, if running is the priority, that's going to take up the majority of your time. It's going to take up the majority of your training stress. It's going to take up the majority of basically everything. So now in my mind as the program designer, I have to think, what is the most important thing that a runner will need in order to not only improve their running, but also reduce the risk of injury from running? What is the most important things that they can do in programming in order to uh, not take away from the running? So I don't want you to be super sore during your runs, right? Uh, that, would, that would not be good for your running efficiency, for your technique, for your endurance, any of that. So this is why we need to establish that main goal. If you said your main goal was to get stronger, but you also want to run, that would be an entirely separate discussion. It would actually be reversed. It'd be flipped. And we could talk about that if we want to later. But with running as the main goal, strength training will have you do two, maybe three times a week max, absolute max. Um, there's no reason to do more than that if, if running is the main goal and you're doing a lot of long distance running. We have to remember strength is in this scenario is going to be done to, to complement your running. So if I'm doing, let's say we're going to do a two time a week program, I would have, honestly, I would have uh, either two full body days or one, one lower and one upper. And there are so many things to discuss about this. What I'll say is I lean towards the two full body days because knowing that the main goal is running the two full body days, it's going to be about like one exercise per movement, not per muscle group, per movement, which is, is not that many. We could have like four to five different movements per day. So very, I'm going to sort of just rattle this off. I don't want to spend yeah. too much time on like what the program would look like, but you could start off on day one with a, a hinging movement. So like a deadlift style movement could be a, a sumo deadlift, a trap bar deadlift could be a Romanian deadlift, whatever hinging movement you want. Then you could go into a, an upper body movement, maybe an upper body push, push-ups, overhead press, bench press, whatever you want. Then you go to a lower body uh, squat movement. 
then you go into an upper body pull movement and then maybe a core exercise and you're done and you repeat that on on the second the second strength training day as well that's what i would lean towards it's lower intensity lower volume than a full body day if the main goal was strength training but again the main goal isn't strength the main goal is running so we're just getting the base amount needed for to make progress and to get stronger without taking away from the running one of the main questions here is where should we put the strength like where do we put the strength training mm-hmm. relative to to your running now i am i am not a a running expert by any means so if someone comes to me and says, hey, can you design me a running program? I say, I, you need to find someone else. If you say, hey, can you design me a strength training program to help with running? That's totally fine with. I'm great with that. But a, a periodizing and programming running is a separate uh, specialty entirely that I'm not an expert in. So what I do if I'm designing a strength training program for running, the major thing I'm going to look at is, especially for long, long distance running is when are your long distance runs? Because I need to know that that's going to dictate where I put your strength training. I will not put your strength training the day or two days before a long distance run. It's a terrible idea because odds are you're going to be the most sore within 24 to 48 hours after your strength training. And the last thing I want is you to have super sore hamstrings and quads before a long distance run. Terrible idea. So what I do is I put the strength training days after your long distance run. Now, the next question, which is logical is, well, isn't that going to impede recovery from the run? And the short answer is yes, it absolutely will in the short term, but long term, it will allow you to adapt and it will allow you to sustain more. It will improve your running efficiency. It will improve what your body can tolerate. It will improve your speed. It'll improve your power, your rate of force development. It will improve your endurance. It'll improve your stability. It's it, even though in the short term, it will temporarily negatively impact the recovery from that long run. It is infinitely better to have it on the back end than on the front end. And when we're working with two competing demands, long distance running and strength, there's going to be a give and take nothing. It can't be optimal every single second of every single day. People run into issues when they try and optimize every second of every day. We have to understand that some, some hours are not going to be optimized, but over the long term, over a month, two months, three months, six months, having this, these two strength training days, the day or two after your long distance run is going to massively improve your endurance. It's going to allow you to get stronger while you improve your, your running as well. So put it a day or two after the long distance run and you're set. Going back to goals, right? If you were just doing some zone two cardio and it's not the priority, you know, maybe you can keep the volume on your strength training and just do a little less cardio, maybe do it after your strength days as opposed to before. Does that sound right? Just following our goals? Like if the goal was was actual strength, but you just want to add in some cardio on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the cool thing about this is zone two cardio is it's so low stress on your body, on your nervous system, on, on everything that you can do it anytime you want. And it's not going to be an issue. Um, my main goal right now is jujitsu obviously, but still a major goal of mine is strength. 
Now, a lot of people say, well, what should you do for a strength or cardio? This is a huge discussion. What should you do for a strength or cardio? People massively debate this all the time. There's an, the argument to be made about strength is that you don't want to do cardio first because the cardio might tire you out before you do your strength training. And, and there's a real argument to be made there. And if your main goal is to be a high-level powerlifter, Olympic lifter, yes, absolutely do your strength before your cardio. But more important than that, for and especially for my audience of people who just want to be fit and healthy and just get stronger overall and improve their, their endurance, just generally speaking, without necessarily being an elite-level athlete, the most important factor is that you do both. You get your strength training in and you do your cardio, especially your zone two cardio. With that in mind, I do my zone two cardio before I do my strength training. Why is that? The reason is because I love strength training way more than I love doing my cardio. Mm -hmm. And if I do, if I save my cardio for last, the odds of me skipping it or shortchanging it are infinitely higher. The, the way that I think about strength training is, or about really exercise period from the moment you step in the gym, you know, like those, those clocks, like the, the sand, the sand timers, you, you turn it over and boom, like the sand oh, starts yeah. pouring down yeah. hourglass. Yes. Thank you. Everyone, everyone has their own hourglass and the hourglass changes as you change. When I was 22 years old and a competitive powerlifter, my hourglass was about like two and a half hours. I could be two in, in the gym, two and a half hours and finish and still feel great. Now my hourglass is about 75 minutes max. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have a daughter, I have a wife, I have work to do. It's like, I don't have the same amount in my hourglass that I used to. So from the moment I step foot in the gym, hourglass turns over and, and, and I have, I have to make use of every minute as efficiently as I can, which means that I'm going to start with cardio for me because I like it the least and I don't want to skip on it. So I do the cardio first, then I get in the strength training. Boom, no problem. I'm good to go. Like this is my favorite part. I'm not going to skip it anyway because it's it's what I enjoy the most. So more important than than theoretically, what is going to be better for your performance? I think practically, what do you enjoy more? Save that for last. Save the best for last. My wife always lasts because I I do this with when I eat food. She always knows what's my favorite of what she cooks because I save it for last on the plate. So like I do the same thing, dude, save the best yeah. for last always <laughs> like, and, and listen, is it going to have an effect on your, on my strength? Yes, it is a hundred percent. Like it, is it going to make a 20% difference on my strength that day? No, maybe a two to 3% difference on my strength. And again, if I was a competitive power lifter, that wouldn't be worth it for me. I, I would do the strength before the cardio. But as a 31-year-old guy, father, husband, you know, business owner, I don't give a fuck if I'm two to three percent weaker that day because I did my zone two cardio first. I'm just glad that I got the zone two cardio in and now I get to do my favorite part, which is the lifting. So we have to be very understanding that there's give and take with everything. Nothing is going to be optimal. But if we're trying to get the best of both worlds, cardio and strength, something has to give, and it's better to do both than only one. So we might as well do it in a way that is going to allow us to do both so we can get the benefits of both, even if one of them is going to be not as good as it could have been. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, I think we're out of time. Yeah. I have another podcast in eight minutes, but before we end, 
I mean, do you think this is a good spot to end with, with the program design series? Is there, what do you think? This is and we'll great. Keep, we'll I keep mean, all this in the podcast. Like we're not yeah. going to cut any of this out. I mean, there were so many great questions. There were still one or two I would have loved to get to, but I think we covered, I think we covered the meat of it and just seeing all, again, seeing all the feedback on, on the iTunes reviews and getting such great questions. I mean, it, it was really awesome. So I just want to thank everybody for, for leaving a note. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you everyone. And, and for everyone whose question we answered, screenshot your question, screenshot the, the question on the iTunes review, email it to me, Jordan at sciatfitness.com. My amazing assistant, Kat, K-A-T, will, uh, you can actually even address it straight to her. Just be like, hey, Kat, wrote Jordan a question on iTunes for his podcast. He answered it and and he gave me a free month in the inner circle. Just screenshot the question so we know it's from you. Uh, and Kat will give you instructions on how to get in the inner circle for a free month. She's amazing. So thank you to everyone who asked a question. Thank you for all the support. Thank you for the reviews. The reviews really do make a huge difference in the ratings, which help more people find the podcast. So uh, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for, for spending this time with me, for talking to me. I'm excited to do more podcasts with you. I think that's just what we're going to do from now on. It's just we're going to do these solo podcasts, but it's you and I. So yeah. I'm very excited. So much fun. Thank you. Of course, brother. Oh, also, everyone follow Tony. Tony, what's your Instagram? Yeah, Tone Reverie. It's underscore. I'll, I'll put it in the notes again. Okay, show notes again. Follow Tony. Shoot him a message. Uh, just to let him know what you thought of the podcast. If you have any ideas or topics for future podcasts, tell Tony because Tony is the one that brings the ideas to me. I, I don't think of any of the ideas. Tony thinks of all of them. So he's the genius behind the scenes. But now he's not behind the scenes anymore. Now you you are the scenes. Tony is the scenes. So uh, thank you, Tony. Thank you everyone for listening. Have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you soon.